Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Come on, LifePoint Church. How are we feeling in the house? So good to have all you guys here with us today, no matter how you're joining us, whether you're online worshiping with us or here in the room. Thank you so much for joining us for God's Word as we kind of dive into this today. If we've never met, my name is Andrew Garcia. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at LifePoint, and I'm excited because we are kicking off our new series, Summer on the Mount. And guess what we'll be exploring throughout the summer? The Sermon on the Mount. It's not a trick question. You're okay. If you guessed it, good for you. If you're worried, such is life. Now, we're going to sit in a circle with Jesus as we walk through chapters in Matthew uh, 5 through 7, and Jesus is going to be breaking down his own teachings. And you might be familiar with these, but I would argue that a lot of us, even those of us who follow Jesus, are, they're actually foreign teachings within our own lives, that even though we say we follow Jesus, we mean to do well, what he's going to talk about, we don't actually show in our own lives. And What's crazy is that the message on the mount is super simple, but the meaning is really deep. And before we can get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, I want to make sure that we don't miss the movements of Jesus that we see in chapter 4. So Matthew is deliberately laying out an account of Jesus, and we need to make sure that we're following this well. And you see Matthew records in Matthew 4, starting at verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, and underline this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now, Matthew has really done us a huge favor here because he has summarized the entire message of Jesus in a single line. This is the core message of what Jesus came to teach. Listen up, repent, the kingdom of God is here. In other words, you're going in the wrong direction. You're moving the wrong way. Turn around, come this way, follow me. And for the sake of just kind of being redundant today, what we find as we read the Sermon of the Mount is it's both circular and layered, that as Jesus is giving us these teachings, he's, he's tying them together as he moves forward. And so I kind of want to make this statement, and you've heard this before, and I know it's cliche, but when we look through history, what we actually realize is that history is all about his story. Cheesy, but true. That the storyline in the Bible is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, that all of heaven and earth, everything in them belong to a king, right? The creator of all things, God, who has sent Jesus to come down and address the mess that humanity has made. Because how many of you guys know we make a mess of things? And I know that that could rub some of us the wrong way. Right? And, and, and I just want you to think about this, and I'm just going to call myself out to start, but I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do what was right. I thought that I was doing what was right. I thought I was saying the right thing. I thought I was doing the right thing, and somehow I still did wrong to myself or someone else. Come on. I'm not the only one. As a human, I've ruined myself, others, God's world, deliberately, unintentionally through my life, my words, my actions. And I wish it was just me. But I think that we can all be honest enough in this space to recognize that we are all at fault because we are all to some extent flawed. And what we find as we follow the life of Jesus is that Jesus has been sent to make right our relationship to God. 
He is the answer to address sin. The sin, all of the goodness that we try to get apart from God. This is the simplest definition if you were to distill what sin is down to something super portable. Sin is trying to get good apart from God. All of the good that we are trying to acquire apart from God. And Jesus is saying, I want to help set us straight so we can experience life and life abundant as you learn to follow me and walk in the kingdom of God that is in me, among us, and will come through you. And after Matthew records these words of Jesus, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, it's at hand, Jesus immediately moves on to calling on his first disciples. And I, I just want to clarify something for a moment. Because if you read the account of Matthew, we can really make some poor assumptions about what it means to begin to follow Jesus, what that journey can st starts like, what it looks like. So let's turn. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And this is where we can get tripped up. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, we can read this and think one of two things. Man, what incredible faith these guys had. Or what I'd like to argue, what a bunch of fools. I'm sorry, you did what? You left everything behind to follow somebody that you don't seem to know. You're giving your entire life to him. Because that's how Matthew shows us. And this is where if we follow that narrative, we get this idea in our head that faith is somehow blind. But what we have to remember that is that this is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus. And if you go and you look at the other accounts that are given to us in Luke chapter 5 and in John chapter 1, we learn that there is so much more happening in this moment than what Matthew actually shares with us. And if we're not careful, we can think that God is just asking us to blindly believe and follow him and just do whatever it is that he says. Faith isn't blind. Faith is informed. Faith in Jesus is often misunderstood as blind belief, right, implying a lack of evidence or rationality. But I want to tell you today, as we start to study the words of Jesus, that faith in Jesus is far from being blind. It is rooted in an informed understanding and a deepening relationship with him as we begin to follow him. And if you're here and you're new to faith or you have doubts and you have questions, what I want you to know is that's okay. And I know, I know that you might expect me to say this, but there are a lot of reasons why we can take Jesus at his word. Okay, one, there's historical evidence. Like what we can't get past is that throughout history, Jesus was. Regardless of what you think about his life, he clearly lived, he walked the earth. <laughs> and so what we have to wrestle with, struggle with, are the words that he said and the claims that he made concerning himself. But the good news is it's not just the Bible that supports him, that there are other extra biblical sources that can come alongside of it. And then what's crazy is that when you actually read the Bible, what you find is that the prophecies that are given to us in the Old Testament, Jesus actually comes and fulfills them all. That hundreds of years prior to Jesus stepping onto the scene, 
these things that have been said about him, when Jesus is born, when he begins to walk, in, out of, walk into his ministry, he begins to fulfill these prophecies, further providing evidence for the truth of his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God, that he's not just a man, he's more than a man. And then for us personally, there's a transformational power that comes alongside of us when, when we begin to recognize that faith in Jesus is not merely a set of beliefs, it's an experiential relationship that transforms us from the inside out. Here's the truth. There are countless of individuals throughout history who have experienced a personal transformation in their faith with Jesus. And their shared stories witness to the power of Jesus to bring about change and healing and forgiveness and spiritual growth. Following Jesus is a personal experience. It's informed by how it is that you walk out his word and how God shows up and shows off within your life. Encounters that are deeply personal, real and transformative that happen inside of us, that come out of us. And then one of the things that I love about God's word is that God's word challenges us towards intellectual engagement. God wants us to study his word to use critical thinking when we come to the text. Like, and what's candid about this, Christianity has a rich history of scholarly investigation, apologetics, and theological discourse. Like, scholars, theologians, philosophers have dedicated their lives to studying and teasing out the claims that Jesus makes and have provided reasoned arguments and evidence to support him. And all of that is just a starting point. Because as you begin to explore who Jesus is, it becomes more than just intellectual assent or an accumulation of evidence. It becomes so much more than that as we learn to personally trust him with our lives, follow him, and surrender to his will through the word. And as trust is built on an informed understanding of who Jesus is, his teachings, and the evidence that you begin to experience as you walk out what he says in your own life, something begins to happen. And I know that there are aspects of faith that transcend our human comprehension. But what is undeniable is that faith in Jesus is reasoned and informed. It's not blind. It's our response to the historical, intellectual, and personal evidence that supports our belief. And this is a faith that invites us to seek, ask questions, and grow in our understanding and a relationship with Jesus. And this is what we find from the lives of the disciples. And what's incredible is Jesus, having called these disciples to come and journey with him, seeing the needs of the crowd that has gathered around him, sits down and begins to share what it looks like, what it means to live the Christian life. And this is where we're gonna begin our series, Summer on the Mount. And we're gonna start with the teachings known as the Beatitudes, and I wanna give you what I understand them to be. And it starts with, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed. Blessed. And here we are, the first quarter of the game, and already we have to take a time out. You see, we think that being blessed is having a nicer, nicer car, a bigger house, more money, a hottie with a body that we can call our own, right? We hear blessed, and we think more stuff, more things, we think that being blessed, that there's, there's some model out there for it. But Jesus isn't saying that. 
And I don't want us to get confused in the passage by what follows next because we can mistakenly slap our American mindset on these words and suddenly what Jesus made so clean, so clear, so simple suddenly becomes so confusing and chaotic and cryptic and we're not sure how they can apply to me. To be blessed isn't a model. To be blessed, as Jesus is about to show us, is to be in relationship with God. You see, Jesus is pointing us to relational reconciliation between creation and creator. And we need to crack open this word blessed to really understand the richness of what is about to follow. Because the word blessed that's used in each one of the Beatitudes is a Greek word called makarios. And it's a word that is ascribed to the gods, meaning that Jesus is saying that in Christianity there is a blessedness that is like, it's a godlike joy. It's a kind of joy that is contained within itself. Meaning it is completely independent of chance and life change. Now, for a moment, we need to hold that really close to our hearts. What God has come to bring, the blessed life that he's come to give us, is independent of chance and the changes that happen in life. You see, so many of us are on our pursuit for happiness. And ironically enough, hap, the root word in happiness, means chance. In other words... Human happiness is something dependent on the chance and changes of life. The happiness that many of us experience is circumstantial, something that life can give or take away in a moment. A change in fortune, a collapse in health, the failure of a plan, the disappointment of an ambition, the change in the weather, something all of us Texans are so very familiar with, can take away in a moment the joy and happiness that we experience within our world. And Jesus is saying, the blessed life that I have come to bring that you can experience is a blessedness, a happiness, a joy, completely untouchable by the circumstances of this temporary immortal life. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The genius of Jesus in this line is incredible. Because the kind of poverty that Jesus is describing here is both physical and spiritual. Right? On one side, there is a kind of poverty that is absolute, object, one where someone is forced to their needs to beg for resources within life, absolutely destitute. But then there is also a kind of poverty where people are resourced, but that's just for life. There are things within our lives that we cannot seem to overcome. And so Jesus here is describing a kind of humble and helplessness of someone who learns to put their whole trust in God. You see, physical and spiritual poverty are two sides of the same coin. Both embrace the idea that a lack of resource requires someone, me, to put my trust in God. And what Jesus is saying are blessed are those who realize that their own, who realize their own utter helplessness and who put a whole trust in God. This is the kind of trust that requires me to become completely detached from the material things of life because we realize that things do not have the power to bring lasting security or happiness. Blessed is the one who attaches himself completely to God because they realize that God and God alone can bring them the help, the hope, and the strength that they need. 
Things mean nothing. God is everything. And what Jesus isn't saying here is that actual material poverty is a good thing. Poverty is not a good thing. Jesus wouldn't look at people living in the slums who don't have enough to eat and say that's a good thing. He actually calls us, his followers, to do something about that kind of poverty. He's saying the poverty of spirit belongs to those in the kingdom of heaven because they have come to realize their lack of resources to meet the life that they are experiencing. And they need to seek out the strength, the help that only comes from God. The kingdom of God is a society where God's will is done as perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is in possession of the poor in spirit because the poor in spirit have realized their own utter helplessness that without God, we have to learn to trust and obey his word, to take him at his word as revealed to us through Jesus and see how he comes through. Then, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What's incredible is that the Greek word that is used for mourn here is the strongest word that they could have used in the Greek. It's, it's a word that is used for the mourning of the dead, right? A lament for the love, of a, the love that has been lost for someone that you cared about. Right? It's a kind of grief that has taken such a hold on me that it cannot be hidden. That's what they're talking about. And if nature has taught us anything, it's that there are certain experiences that only certain circumstances can produce. Right? A land where only the sun shines would become a place where no fruit could grow. There is a life that can only be experienced when rain begins to fall. There are certain experiences that can only be produced, found within sorrow that we experience, within suffering that we endure. Like, have you noticed when things in life are going well, we seem to live superficially on the outside? But then suddenly when our world falls apart, when we don't know what to do, where to turn, where to go, we're driven into the deeper spaces of our soul, where we dig deep into the soil of our hearts, where the tears find their way in and we find a new strength and beauty that we never knew we had within our brokenness. You see, what's incredible is sin has created a separation between our present and our potential. And, and what I want to explore a little bit next is, is my own personal thought, but have you ever noticed that perfection isn't possible and yet we seem to continually pursue its presence? Why is that? How can we know perfection isn't possible and still pursue it as a possibility within our present reality? Because I would argue that we come from perfection, the Garden of Eden, and we are trying to find our way back to it. The problem is that perfection is sustained by God's presence and is only a byproduct of our striving. You see, here's, just hear me out. I would argue that we have moments where we can touch perfection, we just can't sustain it. You see, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we have a sense of perfection but no capacity to hold on to it. In our pursuits of the good life, the perfect life that we know exists but cannot seem to grasp it, that we taste in moments but can't hold on, is because we are separated from God. In our attempt to get what is good, without God, we end up hurting others and ourselves in the process instead of bringing help and healing. All that is worth having in my hands, have you ever noticed, seems to diminish? 
seems to be like sand running through my hands. But in God's hands, it can flourish. There is no good apart from God that we can sustain. We can only taste it in moments. And blessed is the one whose mourning for the good life leads them to acknowledge that the distance between them and God can be closed if we have a desire to pursue Jesus. Blessed are those who realize that they have been trying, striving, seeking the good in the world, but doing it without God. Because it's out of this awareness of who God is and who we are without him that we can find comfort in Jesus. And this is why Jesus says, repent. Because our way isn't working. It literally means turn around. Go another way. Our sin is causing separation. Our sin has contributed to the suffering within the world, but God has come that we can find a way in his presence to experience life and life abundant. And then Jesus takes it up a notch because that requires a kind of humility. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we can look at a word like meekness and we think most often weakness. Bars, come on. Webster, catch this, Webster defines meekness like this. Webster says, meek is with, uh, as injur enduring injury with patience and without resentment, deficient in spirit and courage or not violent or strong. That don't sound very good. Jesus is not saying blessed are the doormats. Not what he's saying here. Meek in the Greek there's the rhyme, is praus. This is one of the greatest ethical words of their day. Meekness, as Jesus describes it, does not imply weakness or passivity, but rather a controlled strength and gentleness. The blessed meek that Jesus is talking about possess power and authority, but choose to exercise it in a humble and gentle manner, showing patience, kindness, and restraint. How is that? Because followers of Jesus recognize it's not my will be done, but yours, God. It's not my strength that I rely on. It's yours, Father. Amen. In the here and now, let your will be done as it is on heaven. And Jesus is raising the bar with this statement. It's, it's like he's saying, blessed are those who are always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time who have every instinct, impulse, and passion under control because they have submitted it to God's control, who have the humility to realize their own ignorance and their own weakness. These are the kinds of people that will inherit the earth. This beatitude challenges conventional notions of power and success. It's presenting to us a countercultural view of true blessedness. You see, our world often praises those who assert dominance, who strive for self-promotion. And Jesus says, I've come to identify and show you a different path. The meek who surrender their own desires and ego are the ones who find true contentment and experience the blessings of God's kingdom. These kinds of people are blessed because what drives them is a hunger and thirst 
for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. And here we are halfway through the Beatitudes that Jesus is walking through. And I don't know if you've realized this yet, because when I used to read these, I used to read these incorrectly. Like Jesus is sitting here talking about groups of people. He's actually talking about a follower of Jesus. It is all of these things are encompassed within one person. What Jesus is emphasizing in verse 6 is that Christians are people who realize that a lack of blessedness comes from a lack of righteousness. A lack of blessedness comes from a lack of righteousness. Right? Being blessed doesn't come, doesn't come from just more blessings, more things. Blessedness comes from being in right relationship with God and right relationship with others. That's righteousness. Doing what is right by God and by others. The issue that we face isn't a physical one. It's a spiritual one. And Jesus takes it a step further. Because Jesus, we can read this and think, okay, I, I thirst after hunger and righteousness. And Jesus says, hold on. Because if you study the words that he's using, he's actually saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after perfect righteousness. You see, you and me, there's a lot of us who have a desire instinctively for goodness. Like we want to do and be good. But that desire is often wistful and vague. It's not sharp and intense because in the moments where the rubber meets the road, many of us aren't prepared to take the effort and the sacrifice that real goodness requires of us. And we fall short. And what's so incredible to me is the true wonder of human beings is not that we're sinners, but that even in our sin, we are haunted by goodness. That even in all of our brokenness, we can't stop staring and longing for the stars, for the perfect life that seems to exist, but we can't seem to grasp it. And a Christian is someone who recognizes that what could be or should be isn't attainable by me, that I, we, need it, but we can't do it. And Jesus says, don't worry, I've brought it. What you see, what you sense, what you're hungry for, what you're thirsty for, while you can't grab it, don't worry if you would come and follow me. I will help you see and be what it is that you want to see and be in the world around you. Take hold of me, follow me. The world that we are longing for, that we have failed to actualize on our own, that we taste and see at times but can't sustain, has come through the person of Jesus. And the Christian walk, following Jesus, it's not about becoming a little bit better. Jesus hasn't come to salvage humanity. He has come to restore humanity completely to bring creator and creation back into right relationship, for God's perfect presence to step back into our painful presence. Jesus is all about relational reconciliation between creation and creator. How many things in the name of good have been introduced into society across the world that we thought would help humanity flourish and looking back, we realize that it has only created deeper problems and gaps in our heart, mind, and soul. 
You want to take a fun little rabbit hole? Just look at the internet. All the good we thought it would bring and the wreckage that is now in its wake. We recognize the pains, the problems, the help that people need. We know it can be fixed, but every time we attempt to do good without God, we only seem to make it worse. And Jesus says, this is why I have come. I have been sent to address the mess that has been made, to pay the penalty of sin by sacrificing myself for the world. That's why he says in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying is, I am the Beatitudes. I am the Sermon on the Mount. And I can imagine Jesus in this moment looking at the disciples that are around him, trying to look at every single one of them in the eye like I feel like he would do right now with you and me if he were in the room and say, until you can recognize that it is happening in me, it can never be true of you. Jesus is all the things that he speaks about on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the Beatitudes. Why, why can we be rich? Because Jesus became poor. Why can we be comforted? Because he mourned inconsolably. Why can we inherit the earth? Because Jesus lost everything. Why is it that we are filled? Because Jesus cried out, I thirst. Why do we get mercy? Because God showed him no mercy. Why is it that we can see God? Because on the cross, he cried out, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He paid the price that we could never pay to close the gap between us and God. The Beatitudes are Jesus living the life we should have lived and then paying the price that we should have had to pay. To be satisfied is to cry out to God, Lord, I see that I can't give you perfect righteousness, but I can receive a perfect righteousness from you through Jesus. Jesus, I believe in you. You see, the law that we find throughout the Bible that Jesus came to fulfill shows us the work of grace that God is giving to us through Jesus. We can receive perfect righteousness as a gift because of Jesus. Jesus was everything that we could never be, that we needed to be but could never become. And the degree to which you understand how much you matter to God is the, the degree to which you will be free from fear, from anxiety, from hopelessness. The degree to which you understand who God is and how much you matter to him is the degree to which you will experience the blessed life. The degree to which you have a sense of your own flawedness is the degree to which you will be willing to show grace and love and kindness to others. Righteousness is about right relationship with God and with others. Blessedness is never giving up on people because Jesus has never given up on you. And only then can we walk out and live out verses seven through nine. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. You see, Jesus is saying we don't react to our world from a place of poverty. We respond from the richness, the depth of God's love for us. We can be merciful because he's shown us mercy. We can have a pure heart. We can understand that, that motives, right, that, peop- that people will have motives that work against our kindness, and that's okay because even Jesus, knowing that at times we would take advantage of him, was okay with it because he knew ultimately we would be transformed if we would learn to follow him. But what makes our faith and convictions true? Testing. And then Jesus walks us into verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted in their work to build right relationship with God and others. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when your claim of me is tested against the pressures of life. Testing is necessary to learn God's word can be trusted, that we can step out in faith and obedience, and he's not going to abandon us or forsake us, but he will hold us and see us through. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why is Jesus saying this? Why does this matter for us? Because through Jesus, heaven has already begun to make its way in earth. And because of Jesus, we can live now differently. We don't have to, we don't treat the world the way that the world treats us. We don't have to react, but we can respond well. Even though the world bothers us, is trying to break us, we can walk in awake and aware, not numb or be distant, because Jesus went first, we can go second. And we have a response ability, response ability, to do for others what Jesus has done for you and for me. And while we can't control how others react, we can control how we respond to be for others what Jesus has been for us, to treat others as the treasure that he has treated you and me. The Beatitudes challenge believers to adopt a new perspective on life, to embody the virtues and attitudes in our daily living that Jesus has embodied within his life for us. To embrace humility, to recognize that we have a spiritual poverty and a dependence on God to learn to let go of our pride in our attempts for self-sufficiency and pursuing worldly ambitions and instead approach God with a humble and contrite heart and say, God, whatever your work is through me, your will be done. To cultivate compassion. To have compassion and mercy towards others. Jesus showed us kindness, forgiveness, understanding in our time of suffering and need and met us there. He's saying, I need you to cultivate that same attitude for others, to never, ever treat someone discarded or like I can't reach them. Cultivate compassion. Pursue righteousness. And don't just pursue it, hunger and thirst for it. 
Be committed to living by my words that I provide you, by my life that I've modeled for you in the word that you have. Read it. Soak it in. Be challenged by it. Seek justice. Do what is right in God's eyes. Be aligned to his work and his will. Be peacemakers. Seek out reconciliation to bring harmony within relationships and within society. Jesus is challenging us to not create division or feel bickering in conflict, but to resolve and bring whole, the, the healing and wholeness that comes from those who know him to endure persecution because opposition is inevitable. And the question is, will you remain faithful and remain steadfast when the going gets tough? Will you be committed to Christ even when it's not convenient? And if you would, you will experience the transformed heart that only comes, the pure heart that we find in him as we trust his word, moment by moment, step by step, breath by breath, living out the word that he's laid out for us as he reorients our priorities, as he changes our value system. Jesus is the Beatitudes for you and for me, and he says, this is how you can live because I did it for you. Pursue it for me. Live counterculturally. Embrace God's way and see heaven come down on earth and see the world restored in a way that you know it could be, that it will be as I work out my will in you and you surrender yours to God. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we're so great, grateful, God, for the grace that you have shown us that you've given us on the cross. And God, so often, so many of us, God, in this space are pursuing, God, to get good things, but we do it without you, and good without God is sin. Trying to get the good in life without you, God, creates separation because ultimately we put our heart, our desires, our motives, God, ahead of what it is that you're trying to work out within us. And God, what you're trying to challenge us at the start of the summer on the mount is that you have life and life abundant for us that can come if we would recognize who you are and who we are and that Jesus has come to fill in the gap. And no matter where we find ourselves on our relationship with you, whether we're investigating faith right now, whether we've been believing for a long time, God, you have something to challenge where we are right now. That we can experience something new, that you are bringing new life, that you have a better way if we would just be willing, God, to turn and follow you. To let your word, God, come alive in our life, to be the light, God, that reframes how we see the world around us. God, help us, Lord, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Work out your will. Have your way. Put us in right relationships with others, God, as we pursue a right relationship with God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.